You're listening to Amy Hall and Greg Kokel on Stand to Reason's hashtag STRask podcast. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Amy. All right. This first question, I, I think this topic today that we have a few questions regarding, I think you will enjoy. It's one of your favorite topics. So um, this first— Smallmouth bass fishing. <laughs> How'd you guess? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this first question comes from Quad G Moto. And it actually, this topic came up a couple episodes ago, Greg, so it follows on from that. Here's the question. I saw the following today. What is your response? So here's what he saw. I still don't understand how grounding morality in God's nature solves euthyphro. One could ask, could God's nature have been other than it is? If yes, it's arbitrary. If no, it's grounded in something else. What am I missing? Okay, uh, to clarify what Euthyphro is, this was a uh, a dilemma that was posed by Socrates in a educational account that dialogue that he offered, and the dilemma had to do with God's relationship to morality, and the question that was asked by Socrates or the character he was representing um, is a thing good because God says it is, or does God say a thing is good because it's good? Okay, now that's the dilemma. In other words, here's one option, and here is the other option. And the problem is for grounding morality in God is that each one creates difficulties. Is a thing good because God says it? So whatever God says, that's going to be good by definition. This seems to reduce goodness to God's power that he can say anything he wants. He could say that rape is bad one day and rape is good the next day, and simply because he says it's so, it becomes so. So it, it seems to remove any sense of goodness from the characterization, and only God's power to say so is left. Well, that doesn't seem right. Well, what if the, the thing is really good, and the reason God says it's good is because it really is good. Now, that appears that he is drawing from an external standard of what is good, and he doesn't have the liberty to change it because the external standard identifies the good. And that's the, that's the fixed standard of goodness that even God himself um, has to uh, abide by and has to acknowledge. Now, this puts goodness outside of God, and that seems to diminish God as well. In the first case, you have God who is powerful but not good because his good goodness and power are really about the same thing. In the second case, you could have a God who is um, – his goodness is only derivative of an external standard. Uh, so he isn't the author of good or whatever. And so something else is good and God becomes contingent to that other thing. And so that just seems like, okay, now what? Now, I, I was mentioning to you during the break, Amy, that the very first time that I heard Euthyphro's Dilemma, something called Euthyphro, uh, J.P. Moreland calls it Euthyphro, and then I—this was when I was at Simon Greenleaf University back in the late 80s, and he was teaching a class that came up, and it immediately occurred to me that there's a third option, that the third option is, no, it is not simply a function of God's will, such that he could will anything at all in any morality at all. It's arbitrary, and therefore it wouldn't really be morality. And it's not a result of some non-arbitrary standard 
outside of God. It is a result of a a non-arbitrary standard inside of God that is God's character, okay? Now, the person being raising the issue says, how does that solve the problem? I'm not sure how why they don't see that it does, because the problem is either it's arbitrary, God's power, or that's not the case. God doesn't will things arbitrarily. He wills them according to a standard. But the standard is not outside of God making him contingent and the standard over him. The standard is inside of him. It is his flawless moral character. Okay, so God just can't will anything to be good or bad. It flows from his character, all right? And so this then kind of splits the dilemma by offering a third alternative. And the third alternative answers the charges of the dilemma, okay? So I don't understand why the person is confused at this point. How does that solve the problem? Because it offers a third option that's not subject to the objection the dilemma offers. It solves the problem. Now, I I guess this doesn't even mean that God is good or that God exists. What it does is answer the defeater, and it defeats the defeater. That's all it does at this particular point. Now, I could take it a step further, and that is, if this isn't the solution, then there cannot be any good at all. And this is what I argue in Street Smarts. This is the bonus for the theist. If there is real evil in the world, there must be a standard of good, and there must be a standard of good established by an appropriate authority, okay? And that's God. But if there's real good in the world, it can only be good if God is good. And if God isn't good himself, then there's no other way to establish goodness in the world. And so um, it's the only solution that avoids the dilemma, for one, and provides an adequate foundation for goodness in the world from which we derive our understanding of evil. Okay, so my whole approach in, in the way I deal with this problem, and I think I've never actually heard anybody deal in it quite the same way, is I always start with the problem of evil, because it doesn't matter where you lived or when you lived, everybody knows something's wrong with the world. It's a universal awareness. But the awareness entails objective morality, because if morality is not objective, is if there are not real moral standards that are broken— and it's only relativistic, then there's no problem of evil in the world. There are just things that happen people don't like. But if there is a real standard of morality, there must be an author of the standard of morality that is adequate to show that the morality is a good thing and not just an arbitrary list of rules. Okay, when this goes a little bit to euthyphro. So this all comes together for me with the problem of evil. Now, there's a way to avoid all of this, and that is to say there is no problem of evil because there is no good. It's all, it's all relativistic. It's all lost in a twilight of moral nothingness. Now, that's a way to avoid this, but that is, that's not the way the world is. And so what I'm trying to do is observe something about the world that everyone acknowledges, problem of evil, and then I'm asking what is of necessity entailed in the fact of evil in the world. And of necessity, what's entailed in the fact of evil is the fact of good— and here I'm talking about objective, transcendent good, because the evil itself is 
objective and transcendent. And in order for a thing to be objectively good in a transcendent fashion, there has to, there has to be an objective grounding for that. It, that we are obligated to be good, that's the nature of morality, and we are only obligated to persons, not to things. Okay, so to whom are we obligated? We are not obligated to be good just to somebody who's really powerful. We can only be obligated to be good to somebody who's really good and who sets the good standard. Okay, so um, then with that in mind, the euthyphor dilemma is is offered and it doesn't apply to our, it doesn't properly apply to our answer because the third solution, the third answer, the third option, which turns out to be a solution to the dilemma, is that God is actually good. And that's the standard that God works with his own character. And if it's not that answer, there is no other answer. There is no other answer for good and evil objectively in the world, and you're stuck with relativism for everything. Uh, Yeah, I think the problem here is that if I'm understanding this correctly, the problem is that he doesn't understand what kind of being God is. So he says, one could ask, could God's nature have been other than it is? If yes, it's arbitrary. Okay, no. No. (laughs) If no, it's grounded in something else. No, God's God's nature is not grounded in anything. This is the whole point. God is a self-existent being. He's not contingent on anything else. He is not any other way than he is. He could not be any other way than he is. He's self-existent. Now, maybe what he's asking is how do we know— And by the way, the way that he is is morally perfect, too. Yes. That's part of the package. And if you reject that, it has consequences for other things. Maybe what he's saying is how do we know that God is good? And here I would just say this is something we apprehend. We apprehend the quality of goodness as opposed to the quality of evil. We recognize it. I I guarantee you everyone out there recognizes the difference between helping someone across the street and murdering them. Mm-hmm. There is a quality that we recognize not because we're comparing it to a standard, an arbitrary standard or any other standard, and we say, oh, it doesn't match that standard, therefore it's bad. We actually apprehend the quality of goodness, truth, and beauty. Mm-hmm versus the quality of the twisting of those things. Would you say the quality of goodness is the standard, though? I mean, it is kind of a standard, but it isn't just simply a list of rules. Well, I'm just saying that we recognize God's goodness. We're not comparing him to another standard, if that's what he's asking. Well, we're recognizing goodness. That's what you were saying. Then the question is, what, what view of the world makes sense of the existence of goodness that is an obligation that we have mm-hmm. to perform. Yes. All I'm saying is we don't have to compare God to a standard in order to see that he's objectively good. Right, right. It's kind of a primitive. It's right there. We see this. And mm-hmm. by the way, if we didn't have that capability that you're talking about, Amy, he would not be able, the challenger wouldn't be able to talk, say that anything is evil. Th- these are entailed together. They are built together, mm-hmm. you know. So God doesn't need grounding as a self-existent being. Everything else needs a grounding for, you know, God is the standard. I mean, ultimately, that's that's 
the point here. And hopefully that helps make some sense of it. Maybe we've misunderstood what his objection his objection is. But do you have anything to add before we go to no, the next question? No, I, I do think that this gets down to the grounded question and um, written about it in different ways and a more thorough explanation coming out in Street Smart's whole chapter dealing with this. But um, I do think it's a it's a it's a little bit hard for people to grasp at first. They have to think about it. And this is why um, I use an illustration I think that's handy, and that is the idea of writers and writing. And for people to say, um, I, I believe that there is thing, there are things to read, but I don't believe that anybody wrote them. And there's an entailment there. If you have written things, those require writers and if you have moral obligations, those that requires someone to whom we are obligated who's adequate to the obligation, and that would be a morally perfect um, God. And that means his character is fixed and morally good, and that's what avoids the dilemma that's been offered. Mm-hmm. Let's go to a question from Sam. How would you respond to someone that claims we have moral values because our culture has learned over time what benefits and does not benefit society? Um, well, what that means, that is a, is a common explanation, all right? Uh, here, but there are a couple of problems. Actually, this is um, Sam Harris's approach, the, the very well-known atheist letter to a Christian nation, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he says morality is about human flourishing. And we can determine what influences flourishing by an empirical way. And here's where science can help out and sociology and whatever, you know, because we can determine human flourishing, okay? The problem is even the notion of human flourishing is, is, is philosophically and theologically laden. Is, is, is the notion of human flourishing uh, provide for abortion on demand or not. Now, there are a whole lot of people think that having the liberty to get an abortion on demand improves human flourishing, but a whole lot of people think it does just the opposite, okay? Now, I'm not arguing either side here. I'm just simply saying the notion of what flourishing means Mm -hmm. is teleological. It presumes something about human beings and what it means for humans to prosper, you know, last year I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, all right? And um, it's it's in many – a very instructive book. It's over 1,200 pages or so and a very uh, enlightening about a way of thinking and also very um, uh, horrifying because there's a whole chapter in there that I couldn't finish reading, quite honestly. It was too gruesome even for me of what Hitler planned for Europe and – and the plans that he began to execute, no pun intended there, uh, for for those who were under his control. Of course, we all know what that is, but it was much worse. The plans went much further than he was able to go. Now, that was human flourishing from his perspective and according to his, his worldview, because the, the Aryans were the humans, and um, the others had lives not worthy uh, to be lived, leben sun vertes leben, a life unworthy of life, and therefore they could be used for the benefit of those who had lives worthy of life. All this to say is the whole notion of what is good for society depends entirely on larger worldview 
considerations. So this is the entailment issue I've been talking about in the last couple of shows. Um, and so what is that? Yes, society has decided what is good for them in some measures. That's what some of our laws reflect. It's curious that the the things that have served us really well are the kinds of laws that are part of a universal code that the Bible reflects. Okay, And when we deviate from those kinds of things, then it becomes a question of whether or not we are actually flourishing. What's good for society? And uh, it seems to me that society was much more, much better off um, in, in terms of flourishing. We didn't have cell phones, but I don't know cell phones as a matter of flourishing. In terms of rich human experience, much better off 30 years ago, 40 years ago than we are now. And some will say, well, wait a minute, we had we had all kinds of racial problems then. But there are a whole bunch of other things we weren't facing that uh, that works against human flourishing. A lot of what, what is good for society depends on what part of society y- you belong to. So Frank Beckwith and I wrote this book called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Mid-Air. And this was a huge problem that we discussed. What is society? Which microcosm represents society? There are, our society, our broader society, is made up of a lot of smaller societies that have different mores and folkways and different understandings of what it means to be to flourish. So who gets to decide that? What this demonstrates is that that rejoinder is it is a shallow rejoinder. It doesn't take into consideration everything that is entailed there, and that it it just amounts to. Uh, morality being completely subjective, relativistic, and that relativistic morality changing from era to era as people's sensibility, you know, individual group sensibilities, whoever's in power, their ideas of what is good and flourishing change. Okay. And this is what we see all over the place is the political um Climate has demonstrated there's a clash of all of these things within the same broader society. This is not a workable solution, okay, and for all the reasons that I've identified. I think it also doesn't explain our sense of obligation. So let's say um, I know that something would cause, quote, more flourishing, but I would prefer to do something else. For my flourishing, yeah. not for society's flourishing. Yeah, so— so where does that sense of obligation come from? Even mm-hmm. if you define it as this is just something that's good for everyone, well, why should I want to do what's good for everyone? Why don't I want to do what's good for me? Why is there any sort of obligation right. for me to do what's good for everyone? The only way to have an obligation to do something is if you're obligated to someone. It's not just here are the things, you know, we all do this. We all know what we can do in our life to make us better, be more disciplined, to do all these things. We can have a list of them. That doesn't mean we're going to do them all or that we'll even feel guilty for not doing them all. There's something different about moral commands that we feel obligated to fulfill them and we feel guilty when we break them. Mm -hmm. And that can't be explained just by this is what makes things better. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think, you know, even if you were on an island all by yourself, and there was no one there to to make you feel guilty about something. If you were to do something morally wrong, if that's possible on an island all by yourself, then you would feel guilty because you are guilty of breaking a law 
from someone who is higher than you that you're obligated to mm-hmm. respect and follow. Yeah. Think the, uh, the South flourished under slavery. They flourished. Everything was going great for the society that mattered to those in power. And that's why this whole concept of the culture decides what's good for culture all depends on who's in power. Mm -hmm. I use the Third Reich as an example, too. This was good for them. Now you start imposing other things like, oh, well, that's not good for everybody, and we have to have something that's good for everybody. Well, it wasn't good for many of the Southerners to lose all their slaves. But it was a higher good that was accomplished when human beings were liberated from slavery. Okay, and that had to be imposed by force, and we had a civil war as a result. And so, you know, it's it's just not—it isn't like, well, we all just agree with what's—so what's what's good for society. All different kinds of societies are involved. There is no simple society. And to decide what's good for society is also based on an understanding of what society is supposed to be like. It's teleological, and people don't agree on that. Mm-hmm. And the secular view and the religious view are quite different when it comes to that, though each are part of society. All right. I'm sure there's much more we could say on yeah. this topic. Um, but we have we have talked about this before. So if you're interest, interested in hearing more, uh, definitely go back through our archives. You can always go through our archives. We have so many topics that we've Plus, discussed. It, if I could, the book Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, goes into detail on the problems of this particular approach. You have the reformer's dilemma, which is another difficulty, because society is the standard. So if society is the standard, then whatever society says, the majority rules, that's what is good by definition. Mm -hmm. So when you have a reformer, like a Gandhi or uh, Martin Luther King or someone like that, well, they're odd man out. They're going against the society's sense of what's good, so they must be bad by definition. That's also part of the problem of this approach. But that's all in the book. And let me just add, yes, when we are acting morally, we do better. Mm. I mean, that is true. Mm. But the question is why and why are we obligated to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, is it because God created us to be a certain way and he has— he is good and he wants us to be like him. And when we're more like him, things are good. Or is it just because of some utilitarian, you know, reason that people give? If it's just some utilitarian reason, then some people will suffer, as you pointed out, who are not in power. And that is just what we see over and over. Now, maybe some people might say, well, It's just a question of people getting it wrong. So maybe there's a way to flourish and people just have to figure out the right way. Okay, but the problem, again, there are still things it doesn't explain like obligation. And uh, whereas with Christianity, you see that there's a reason why we do better when we are moral. But the fact that we do better when we are moral doesn't explain the morality existence in the first place. So I don't know if that helps explain. (laughs) These are all part of the package, right? All right. Well, we are out of time. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag SDRask podcast. We hope to hear from you. Send us your question on Twitter with the hashtag SDRask. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason.